0: Okay, Hi, everyone, and and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Melanie Joy. Melanie is a Harvard-educated psychologist and the author of seven books. She is also the founding president of the international NGO Beyond Carnism. Today, we'll be discussing her book, The The Vegan Matrix, understanding and discussing privilege among vegans to build a more inclusive and empowered movement. This book was published in 2020 by Lantern Media and Publishing. Uh, welcome welcome to the podcast, Melanie.
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's great to have you here. Um, okay. could, could you start things off by just telling us a, a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, uh, the sort of work you do, or, or really anything else you think that listeners might want to know about you?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a psychologist. I'm an author, as, as you've pointed out. I'm, I'm probably best known, or not probably, I am best known for my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, which actually formed the foundation for The Vegan Matrix, which we'll we'll talk about in a little a little bit. Um work basically looks at why rational and compassionate people support irrational and harmful practices and how to change this. So I specialize in the psychology of social change and in building healthy relationships, which includes effective communication. Um, And um, yeah, I'm also the founding president of uh, Beyond Carnism. Our our mission is to expose and transform carnism globally, which, you know, we'll talk about briefly. And we run um, the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy, where we train people who want to talk about um, veganism or empower veganism, empower the movement um, to do this more more effectively. I'm originally from the U.S., um, from Boston, actually, is where I, at least it's where I spent most of my life in the U.S. And uh, for the past uh, what is it now? Just about nine years, I've been living in Berlin, Germany. So that's where I'm based now.
0: Right. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks. And um, yeah, I guess. Um, uh, the work you do with the Center for um, uh, Effective Vegan Advocacy, that's the name of it, right? The Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy?
1: Yeah, that's our um, main program through the yeah. Carnism.
0: Yeah, okay. That And it sounds like the book I'm about to be interviewing you about here is is very closely related to that. Um, it's almost an expression of it or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually, I mean, it, interestingly, it's an expression of but sort of both dimensions of the organization. But um, yeah. yes, definitely. How do, we, how do we communicate about critical social issues, work to raise awareness when we're com- communicating about an issue that tends to automatically create defensiveness in the listener? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, well, uh, I'll, I'll ask you about the book really soon, but there, there's um, some stuff that's interesting about you that I wanted to um, to ask about. Um, so what, one cool thing about you is that you won something called the, the Ahimsa Award, um, uh, I think back in 2013. Um, this award has been given out, I think, something like 15 times so far, and it's associated with uh, uh, an international uh, group uh, uh, that's part of Jainism. But um, yeah, so the, the, I mean, the past winners of this award include People such as Nelson Mandela, the the Dalai Lama, and King Charles, formerly known as Prince Charles, also won this award at one point. it, it sounds like it's a big, really big deal to have won this award. Like, i just, I was hoping you might comment on that or, or say something about it.
1: I mean, well, when I was granted the award, the um, Center for um, Genealogy, I think it is, the Institute of, Institute of Genealogy is, I think what they're called. I hadn't heard of them before, but they reached out to me back in 2012, I think, um, and just said, you know, we've been following your work. And they're not, Janes are, you know, a, a religious uh, group, but they're, you know, many of them are like the most religious. Janes tend to be vegan, um, but many, many Janes are actually not. And the people hosted who hosted me were not. They were vegetarian but not vegan. So... Um I was very excited because I had this opportunity to give a speech at the House of Commons in London, um, you know, and get the award and and really raise awareness of this, you know, critical issue of animal exploitation and and, and talk about the consumption of dairy and talk about, you know, how eating animals is not in alignment with uh, ahimsa, which is you know nonviolence, a central tenet of Jainism. So it was a very interesting experience and, and a great experience actually to be connecting with with people and having these conversations and and, and using the opportunity of course to raise awareness
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah well cool um okay the the uh, another neat thing about you um so you you recently uh started a podcast with um the uh actor and activist ivana lynch you're you're co-hosting a podcast called just beings and this uh podcast just finished its first season um are are it, it, it looks, I've, I've listened to a few episodes. It's, it's a neat podcast. Uh, do you want to say something about it maybe?
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. Ivana and I started this podcast just, just this year. And um, we really wanted to, we wanted a podcast where we could talk about, um, we could basically invite people who are doing, you know, any kind of work to help create a better world for humans, animals, non-human human animals, or the planet to, you know, thought leaders, essentially, or people who are working to change the way that we think to create a better world to, um, you know, to sort to just discuss their work and in each conversation, you know, really to talk about the commonality between all of these different, you know, issues, whether we're talking about, you know, justice for animals, justice for the environment, you know, or justice for humans, you know, how they all share this common denominator and sort of re- rely on a common approach to to transformation so it's a way to invite people into conversations about veganism who are not vegan but who are very justice oriented and vice versa
0: okay and and so I mean, this will maybe become clearer to listeners uh as we as we go through but i think that this is another really another area where there's a close connection between w- work you're doing else elsewhere kind of and and also this book you wrote i think um uh Yes. Well, anyways, it'll it'll be, we should maybe just talk about the book uh, (laughs) because it won't be, it won't be obvious until we've talked about the book that, that the Just Beings podcast is, is actually pretty closely related to, to the book, I think. It is, it is. So, so this, yeah, this book, um, uh, The Vegan Matrix, why, why did you decide to write it?
1: Well, so by the time I wrote The Vegan Matrix, um, I was already well known in the animal protection movement or the vegan movement, you know, uh, but almost entirely for my work on carnism, um, which was popularized in Why We Love Dogs. And in fact, this is the work that formed the foundation of The Vegan Matrix in some ways. So... Um, I'll just give a brief explanation about that work, and you know how I came to, to write "Why We Love Dogs" and how that evolved into the Vegan Matrix. Um, because the Vegan Matrix is really is, is, is an extension of these thoughts that that I put together for "Why We Love Dogs." Um, I wrote "Why We Love Dogs" the, the twenty, the twentieth, um, the tenth anniversary edition was recently published. Um, I, it was first published in um, 2010, actually, and I wrote Why We Love Dogs after becoming vegan myself. Um, and, like, basically waking up to the reality that information alone is not enough to help shift harmful attitudes and behaviors. Like, you know, I used to have this belief that like only people knew the truth about what was going wrong in the world. You know, they would never want to participate in these atrocities again. But as you well know, I'm sure listeners well know, um, more often than not, you know, the information doesn't sell the ideology. So why we love dogs grew out of my own life experience. You know, I, I grew up like many people, certainly in the West, you know, with a dog who I loved and I was always someone who really cared about animals. Um, who cared about justice. I come from a family that's very justice oriented. I would never have, you know, wanted to support violence against non-human animals. Um, and yet, of course, I grew up eating meat, eggs, and dairy, and you know, I just never made the connection between the meat, eggs, and dairy on my plate and the living being it once was, um, or those once were, until uh, 1989, um, I was 23 at the time, and uh, I ate a contaminated hamburger, um, and I wound up in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics. I was just beyond sick. And, um, after that experience, I stopped eating meat. Um, not because I had made any sort of ethical connection, at least not on a conscious level. Um, but just, I was, you know, when you're so sick, you're just disgusted by the last thing you ate and it just makes you sick to think about it. So I was like, ah, never eating meat again. So I kind of became a vegetarian by accident. And then in this process of, um, learning to shop and cook for myself. I, of course, stumbled on information about um, animal agriculture, and what I learned just completely shocked and horrified me. I I, I could not believe the extent of the harm that was being done to non-human animals, and also the environment, and also to human consumers. And this was like 89, so there wasn't a lot, I mean, there was enough known back then, but nothing compared to what we know today. Um, So I was just completely shocked and horrified. I met a vegan shortly after this. I became vegan shortly after that. And, but anyway, what, what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say, you know, and these were like rational people. They were compassionate people. These were my friends and family members. They were justice oriented people. They were people who cared about animals, you know, just like I had been all my life. And yet their response to the information I was sharing was always like, you know, something like "Don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal," or they'd call me a radical vegan hippie propagandist. Like they just, you know, they just shut down the conversation. And I was just like, "What the hell is going on here?" I I felt like I had woken up in the midst of like collective insanity, which, I did. You know, I had. So. This led me to become very curious, you know, as to how rational, compassionate people could basically just check their critical thinking at the door, just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. And I eventually, um, you know, uh, enrolled in a psychology program, a PhD program in psychology, Um, and I, I studied the psychology of, at the time, I was calling it violence and nonviolence, you know, broadly, and then I narrowed down the focus of my research for my doctoral dissertation to the psychology of eating animals, and this was what led me to write Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, which is based on my findings from that research. And the key finding that I I took away was, um, you know, that the reason we eat, you know, I almost said dogs, the reason we eat pigs, but not dogs, for instance, is because we um, have been conditioned by an invisible belief system that I came to call carnism. So carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And it's essentially the opposite of veganism. And what I did in my dissertation and then unpacked in my book, which was you know, written for a popular audience, it wasn't an academic book, was really uh, try to understand, I really look at and analyze the structure of carnism. Like, what is the system? How is it structured? And, you know, specifically, how does it shape our mentality? I call it the carnistic mentality so that people can eat animals, you know, and act against their core moral values and their own interests and the interests of others. You know, people who we know are hardwired to feel empathy for others, including other animals. Um, you know, what is this mentality? And so that's really what my work was. It was deconstructing, it was naming and then deconstructing the system and specifically, specifically looking at the psychological mechanisms that keep it intact. And, um, what I came away with was actually much more than an analysis of what I was calling carnism. It was, it was actually a blueprint for all systems of oppression, right? Um, All of these systems, carnism, uh, patriarchy, classism, racism, speciesism, and so on. I mean, they all, they all share a very similar structure. They're all structured in the same way. And, you know, even though the victims of each of these systems. You know, will the, the experience of the victims of each of these uh, systems will always be unique. It's not appropriate to compare the, the experience of the victims, of course. The systems themselves are structurally similar and um, and the, most importantly, the mentality that enables these systems is the same. And so I worked for, you know, after, you um, Writing "Why We Love Dogs," I founded beyond Carnism. And um, it wasn't until and, and my focus was really on carnism awareness, like raising awareness of carnism and empowering vegans, so or anybody who's promoting veganism, right, to be able to understand and talk about the issue you know, raise awareness and advocate um, given this sort of like defensive structure that is created in people's mentalities, right? So how do you talk to somebody who's basically been conditioned to be defensive against everything you say to them about eating animals, right? So, um, So that's really, you know, it wasn't until 2018 that I started expanding my writing um, and i you know in 2018 i started writing about other forms of oppression so it, in the animal protection movement where my work was quite well known at that time what wasn't known about me is that i wore these other hats and i hadn't been vocal about them in the ways that i have become lately simply because i was at capacity and other people were you know doing work i felt like i, I didn't need to fill any gaps um I, in 2018, I wrote a series of online essays about privilege and oppression in the vegan movement, um, you know, we're among vegans, uh, you know, about patriarchy and racism and classism, other isms, you know, other problems. Um, and then in 2019, I wrote a book about the psychology of oppression more broadly. And then after that, I was also writing about this other hat, like the work, uh, of, that reflects this other hat that I've worn for many, many years is a relationship specialist and a relationship coach. And so, you know, all of these different hats sort of started to synthesize. Um, and in, in, in 2020, I published the vegan matrix, um, which is sort of a, it's an amalgam of these sort of newer works, um, I hadn't wanted to write The Vegan Matrix before 2020, um, or even before t- 2018, in part because, like I said, I was, I was really at capacity. You know, I sort of, I started this organization, Beyond Carnism, and it was like, I mean, I describe it sort of as a, an unplanned pregnancy, like, I had this book, <laughs> Why We Love Dogs, and people were, like, writing me and wanting me to speak and having all these questions, and it was, like, I had to do something. So I put up this website, and I called it Carnism Awareness and Action Website uh, Network, and it kind of turned into an organization. So, you know, I was basically at capacity sort of running the organization, trying to run r- raise awareness about carnism and so on. But then, you know, at the height of AR Me Too, you know, I felt like I really I really had to start doing some writing. I felt like, you know, I had already been feeling guilty that I wasn't using my platform to raise awareness of, of of other issues. Um, you know, especially issues that I was personally familiar with and also really passionate about. And so what what people didn't know about me is that I had been active in social justice causes, you know, since the nineteen eighties. Um I was part of the Boston chapter of Feminists for Animal Rights back in the early 90s, and I taught university courses on privilege and oppression and feminism and related issues for over a decade, you know. And as a woman, I was no stranger to patriarchy, sexism in the vegan movement. And like for many years in the movement, I had tried alongside other women unsuccessfully to raise awareness of male privilege, Um, you know, among many of my colleagues for many, many years. And, you know, and also of other forms of privilege as well. And I'd consistently been met with a tremendous amount of resistance. And it was very, very frustrating for me. And I, I would experience the same thing from vegans. Like when I would talk to vegans about patriarchy, you know, uh, I would very often get the same kind of response that I used to get when I would talk to non-vegans about eating animals. So, um, so, yeah, so I felt like it was just, you know, I also knew that there were other people doing this really important work in the vegan movement. You know, there's like the work of Sill and AFCO and Lisa Kemmerer, you know, people were writing on these topics, you know, so I felt like, well, I don't need to be writing on them. I'll start talking about them, but I don't need to write a book. I hate writing books. Why would I ever write another book? Which I basically say every time I write a book. Um, but, you know, but then I, I came to realize that like there are these amazing materials out there um, but there wasn't something that I felt like was a, just a super straightforward, actionable guide for vegans who really want to understand the very basics of what privilege is and how to talk about it in a way that increases the chances that their message will be heard as they intend it to be. And so that was the the impetus and the background.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, you know, thanks for all that. Um, yeah. I, I take it the, uh, the hashtag MeToo movement and, and I guess more specifically hashtag uh, Animal Rights MeToo um it was sort of an opportunity for you so you, the, the vegan matrix was something you maybe would have been interested in writing in the past but you didn't feel like people would in the vegan movement would have listened or really been interested but but now there's all this interest right
1: well i yeah i mean i felt like so yeah yes um and what i noticed was that this was the first time That a lot of my colleagues who I had been really trying to talk to about these issues started to pay attention and they were like, okay, maybe there is a problem here. And I'm like, I've been saying this for 30 years, but whatever. Yes, there is a problem. Um, And they were really open. And then they were coming to me. They're like, well, give me something. Where where should I go? What, What should I read? because this is what happens, right? Like, okay, I will find the right things for you to read so you don't have to look yourself. But people were coming to me, a lot of people were actually coming to me asking for resources. And there are good resources out there, very good ones, but there wasn't anything that was like basically like privilege 101 and like speaking in a way they, they all to some degree re- required either a level of sophistication or, or uh, so, that's not the right word but a level of like um education around the issues to begin with um and some of them um were you know a little bit just too off-putting for people who are highly sensitive to these issues so, so that was really the impetus for writing okay. the book
0: okay yeah um, okay, well, let's let's get into the the content of the book. Um, so, one one of the main ideas in in the vegan matrix is that various matrices affect or distort our, our perception of the world, of ourselves, and of other people. Um, I was hoping you could explain what this idea of a matrix is, as well as the relationship between this the idea of a matrix and uh, the concepts of privilege and oppression.
1: So, I was using the analogy of the matrix, like from the yeah. movie of the same name, basically to describe how dominant. Certain types of dominant systems, and here we're talking about systems of oppression, psychologically affect us. You know, so systems like I said, like carnism, patriarchy, racism, and so on, you know, these are these dominant systems. Um, when a system is dominant, it basically means that its tenets are, are so widespread. That you know, they're invisible. They're basically woven through the very structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, et cetera, you know, and they become institutionalized. and um and when we're born into a dominant system, um you know we end up, looking at the world through the lens of that system, we, we internalize it, you know, so, uh, we internalize this mentality. And I I briefly mentioned earlier, you know, what I call the carnistic mentality, right. And it's this distorted mentality, um, Carnism. Let me back up and and use carnism as an example for for listeners who are are, are wondering what I mean by this mental this kind of mentality, right? This privileged mentality that, you know, in, in one case when we're talking about eating animals, it's it's expressed through what I would call carnistic privilege. And I I also want to say that I do not mean to suggest that carnistic privilege is the same as, for example, male privilege or white privilege or, you know, privileges that are, you know, causing very like widespread systemic harm to people all around the world. I I use this as simply as an example to help people who are vegan, who may not recognize um, other forms of privilege easily to have something to identify with. So so carnism and, and systems of oppression in general are Are like they run counter to the core values that most people experience, that most people hold. Um, You know, values, compassion and justice are are, are the most obvious ones. Most people would never like like willingly support these systems, not consciously support these systems, and yet most people actually do support these systems, um, participate in them in different ways. So systems such as carnism need to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. These are are, are ways of thinking so that we act against our values and our interests without realizing what we're doing. These psychological defense mechanisms distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our authentic feelings so that we act against our values, right? And we we don't see it. So just as a, a, a quick example, you know, for listeners who are, you know, probably, you know uh, vegan themselves, right so when it comes to 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 carnism, um, we learn, for example to think of or people most people learn to um, see farmed animals as abstractions, right so we learn to think that farmed animals you know are lacking any personality or any individuality of their own. A pig is a pig, and all pigs are the same this is a this is a defense mechanism this is a distancing mechanism this distances people from the reality of the animals that they're eating. So these defense mechanisms distort our perceptions, right? Such that we end up defending our right, our privilege, our right to participate in the oppression without realizing what we're doing. So, you know, you talk to a non-vegan and all you have to do is say, I'm vegan. And immediately, you can feel the wall go up, right? Or, you know, very often, that person will start telling you all the reasons that veganism is wrong, even though they never even heard the word until five minutes ago when you first mentioned it. Like, there's all of these defensive reactions. That's their privilege. That's their carnistic mentality, which is organized around their their privilege, their privilege, their sense of entitlement, their belief that they have a right to eat animals. And, um, you know, and they're entitled to continue doing this. And so, privilege distorts we can think of our privilege whatever kind of privilege as an entity that's basically hijacked our psyche and it wants to keep itself alive and anything you know it causes us to feel defensive against anyone or anything that actually challenges it and so when i talk about the matrix like at this internalized you know this this internalized way of thinking um that's what i'm referring to is this psychology this this privileged mentality and so you know very often vegans you know feel like i've met many many vegans and this is understandable it's just not not accurate you know that somehow like once you've examined your human privilege you know you've reached the final frontier like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm thinking about my impact on on animals. So, like, I must have gotten to the final frontier. And without realizing that you're plugged into all of these other matrices, you know, whether it's male privilege or or white privilege or, you know, whatever else, you are plugged into them because you have been socialized in these widespread systems and there's absolutely no way that you're not influenced by them. There's no way you haven't internalized this way of thinking. And the only way to really change this is to commit to becoming aware of, and we can talk specifically about this, what is privilege, you know, how does it affect me, you know, and how is it manifested? Because when you become aware of it, it has less power over you.
0: Mm-hmm, right, yeah, so I, I take it the the vegan matrix is sort of like a col- the collection of matrices that vegans are uh, perceptions are, are distorted by, but Sans carnism, like so, carnism is itself a kind of matrix that vegans have, by and large, not maybe not entirely, but somewhat overcome. But there are all these other matrices that that some, at least at least many vegans may not have thought much about or or become yes. sufficiently aware of, right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. You know, we assume that like when we when we step out of one for one oppressive system, right? Yeah. It, then we've somehow step out stepped out of all of them. But like usually, you know, we step out of one and we stay, you know, immersed in others unless we actively commit to becoming right. aware of those other systems.
0: Right. Okay. Um, well, so let's. I, I guess we'll explore this further. Um, so an, an an important claim that you make in your book, um, and which you explore at length in another of your books, I know. is that that all systems of oppression share the same psychological structure. And and you refer to this structure as powerarchy. Uh, I was hoping you could could explain this concept to us, what, what powerarchy is.
1: Okay, well, so I wrote this book called Powerarchy back, it was published back in um, 2019. And um, I've stopped using the term, because I found that it was, it was getting confusing for people, but I can, but the concept remains. And um, I, I've actually revised that book and rewritten it such that it's coming out as a new book called How to End Injustice Everywhere. And I'll, I'll explain the premise of it. Um, so it'll make sense for people. Um, you know this when we look at as I as I said earlier, when we look at these systems systems of oppression. Um, you know, we can see that they're structured similarly, and we can see that they they all share the same like they all. Re- are based on the same mentality. The mentality that, that, that enables us to carry out violence and support oppression is the same. The content changes, right? Who we're supporting violence or oppression to may change, but the mentality itself actually stays the same. This mentality is based on a core belief. This is a belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, the belief that some individuals or groups are more worthy of moral consideration, of of being, basically to simplify this, of being treated with respect than others, right? So the particular individual being targeted changes, the content changes, who is oppressing whom changes, but the mentality and the core belief remain consistent. So when you look at all forms of oppression and, and also abuse, they are based on this core belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, again, that some individuals or groups are more worthy of moral consideration or of being treated with respect than others. Um, I originally referred to this mentality as, as powerarchy, the powerarchical mentality. Um, that turned out to be confusing for people, um, and I, power is a piece of a whole, but it's not the core of the whole. Um, I now refer to this mentality exclusively as the non-relational mentality. It's because this mentality causes us to interact, to relate or to interact with others um, and also with ourselves. We're always relating to ourselves, but to interact with others in a way that causes harm to our relationships and to the individuals, right? So it causes harm to relationships between individuals and also among social groups, and it it also creates this mentality is what creates and grows unjust power imbalances. So when we look at these systems of oppression, right? These are, and I'll I'll get into this a little bit more because I know we're going to be talking a bit about how relational dysfunction plays a role in in oppression. Um, and kind of leading into this now, but, um, you know, it, it's in the, these systems of, oppra- you know, these systems of oppression I refer to as non-relational systems. These systems are actually organized to create harm to the relationships between individuals or relationships between humans and non-humans, relationships between social groups, and so on. hmm
0: Okay, yeah, great. And I'll, I will I do want to ask you about um, relational dysfunction in a moment. Um, but um, with respect to um, the, dis- so yeah, I know you, so I guess you don't like the, the term hierarchy anymore. But so the, you make this distinction between um, uh, the structure and content of oppression. And so different kinds of oppression share the same structure, but each have different content. Um, I take it, I, I take it this is like a useful distinction to make. So um, the fact that like all, so if 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 this is right that that all um, forms of oppression share the same structure, it's useful to learn about that structure. Like you're going to be able to combat oppression more effectively, understand it better if you understand the common structure across types of oppression. But uh, if if content is different, it's not going to be enough to learn about just one type of oppression. Like adequately understanding each kind of oppression requires understanding everything that's in the in the content of each type. Like so, so you still need to like make. Make an effort to learn about each kind. You can't just learn about one kind and think you understand all of it, or or something.
1: Exactly, right? and yeah. and both are important. You said that really, really well. Actually, yep. thank you for that. Um, so it's kind of what I was trying to say, but you you summarized it very succinctly. It's 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 not enough to simply look at who is oppressing or abusing whom. Like we have to ask how and why we oppress and abuse in the first place, right? So it's it's important to understand oppressive and abusive dynamics. So oppressive dynamics. have Happen on an ins- on a institutionalized and abusive dynamics are basically the exact same dynamics, but they happen on more of an interpersonal level. Um, but you know, it's it's not enough to ask just who is oppressing or abusing whom. We, we really need to understand why and how we oppress and abuse in the first place, or we're just going to trade one form of oppression for another. You know, we'll we'll stop oppressing one group, but when we maintain the mentality that caused us to participate in oppression in the first place then we just direct that mentality toward another group and especially when it comes to those of us who are working towards social transformation we can see this mentality this non-relational mentality right this this that's organized around this belief in a hierarchy of moral worth we can see that unless we really understand this mentality and unpack it and learn how to sort of decondition and recondition ourselves we keep replicating it and, and you can see this in our social justice movements, you know, a lot of our groups and movements themselves are cannibalizing themselves because we haven't examined this mentality, you know, and we, you know, we may, when we talk about like this, this, um, hierarchy of moral worth, we may not be talking about, you know, uh, treating or causing harm to those who have less power or who are non-human animals who have a different color skin than we do or a different accent than we do we carry out the same mentality however when we look at people who are you know supposedly less compassionate than we are who don't believe with our political who agree with our political beliefs who are acting in ways that we perceive as harmful you know and so we really can start you can see within groups and movements that we start treating each other in the very ways you know, we, we start basically becoming the very thing that we're trying to transform. So if we want to end oppression, essentially, we really need to change the way that we relate. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let, let's and let's talk about um, relationships, um, which is something else you, 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 you've you written a lot about this. So and in, in this book in particular, in The Vegan Matrix, in Chapter 2, you look at um, various ways in which privilege um, can be harmful. Um, but but you, you, all, you talk about one type of harm at, at one point, um, namely the harm that privilege does to relationships. And it struck me when reading it that this is a sufficiently broad kind of harm that it probably captures some of the other harms you talk about too. Um, so I was hoping you, could, you yeah, could further explain to us the connection between um, privilege and relational dysfunction.
1: Sure. I mean, I'll start on a meta level and then I can talk about, you know, what this looks like on an interpersonal, you know, on a, on a, on a more individual level. Um, so, you know, when you look at some of the most pressing problems, right, in our personal lives, but also in our world, like, you know, war and poverty and uh, domestic abuse, animal exploitation, climate change, patriarchy, you know, racism and so on, right? You can see that, like, all of these problems share a common denominator. I mean, they share many common denominators, but one key common denominator that they share is relational dysfunction. Um, Relational dysfunction is dysfunctional ways of relating, you know, dysfunctional ways of relating between individuals, between social groups, between humans and non-human animals, between humans and the environment. And, you know, as I said, also between us and ourselves, but I'll leave that out for now. Um, And so, What this means is that, you know, a common denominator in addressing and helping to transform all of these problems is relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. I mean, I I always say that, like, I'm I'm just amazed that we, you know, most of us have to learn complicated geometry in our lives that we'll probably never need to use, and we don't get a single formal lesson on how to relate in a way that's healthy. And when you look at the problems in the world, they are not problems that are caused by people who don't know how to do geometry, right? So... Um, So, so systems, uh, you know, I should unpack privilege a little bit, right? So these systems of oppression, you know, or these non-relational systems that that I've been referring to are, you know, organized around privileging and and many, many people have written about this, right? Organized, you know, to, to maintain themselves by privileging certain individuals and groups and disadvantaging others and conditioning us to act in ways that maintain these privileges and disadvantages. And so, I mean, a privilege is basically just an advantage that's given to some and denied to others, you know, and something is only a privilege if some people don't have it. If everybody has the same advantage, then it's 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 no longer an advantage. Now, you know, what we're talking about people when they talk about oppressions, they're talking about um, unearned privileges. And earned privilege is like a driver's license, right? You have to earn the right to drive a vehicle. Um, but an unearned privilege is a privilege that, you know, you've done nothing to earn, you know, so you've been born into or inherited. And, um, you know, when you have, you know, and, and the, sorry, the flip side of privilege is oppression. And, you know, and so some people are pri- privileged and, and, and some people are are what are called oppressed or disadvantaged, or we can say some animals um, as well. What happens is that, you know, a, a lot of t- we we internalize the Mentality that goes along with whatever role we play in a system, right? So if you're in a privileged role in a system, if you're in a position of greater power in a system or greater privilege in a system, you've internalized a certain way of thinking that causes you to interact with others in a way that don't share your privilege, right, in a way that harms relationships. Literally, many, many vegans, I mean, I've heard this over and over again, I've heard this from, you know, people experiencing all different types of, you know, privileged and disadvantaged dynamics, talk about how the people in their lives make jokes and talk to them in ways that drive them away that cause them to feel disconnected and insecure in their family members or their friends' presence when their family members and friends have no idea that their behaviors are having this impact because when you have privilege you tend to be you know very unaware of the fact that you're having this impact on others
0: mm-hmm. okay right um <laughs> Well, th- thankfully, there are, there are ways to um, mitigate the harms of privilege, um, and your book discusses it. So, so your book suggests that uh, one of the best ways we can, we can mitigate or even prevent uh, the harm that our privilege can cause is by becoming privilege literate. Uh, I, I was hoping you could explain the idea of privilege, liter- privilege literacy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's basically building awareness, right? And when you become aware, you know, awareness is both a cognitive or an intellectual endeavor, and it's also emotional, right? So when you're aware, you really, you know, you, you understand, as you rightly pointed out, you know, you understand the general like structure and nature of oppression in general, but you also understand the structure and nature and manifestations of specific types of oppression as well. And it's not just understanding, you know, intellectual, it's also empathizing with those who are, who don't share your privilege, you know, with those who are disadvantaged because of your privilege and it's being willing to listen and learn.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, it, I, I like this. I think this is a really useful concept. Um, art strikes me as very useful. Um, because so, I mean, and you, and you discuss this in the, in the book a bit, but um, privilege is kind of a, a tricky thing because, on the one hand, um, whether one is privileged is a product of circumstance. Usually, um, one is often born into their privilege. They're, you know, born born uh, uh, with male genitalia and thus socialized to be male, um, or they're uh, born into a wealthy um, family or, or what have you, uh, and. So, so on the one hand, privilege is itself the product of circumstance, by and large. But, but we also want to be able to hold people responsible for their behavior, uh, uh, the behavior that's that's um, caused by their privilege or associated with their privilege. Um, and it seems like it, it seemed to me that the idea of privilege literacy is useful for navigating that because we can acknowledge that people are not responsible for their privilege, but they are responsible for the way they relate to their privilege. They can be held responsible for either, you know, becoming privilege privilege literate or failing to become privileged privilege literate. Um, so that, yeah, that struck me. That struck me as I guess a philosoph- Maybe maybe I'm I'm a, I'm a philosopher as my background, and uh, philosophically, I thought it was useful for navigating that kind of trickiness associated with privilege.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely, and you know, it's it's also. It's tricky. Like these conversations are very, very tricky to have. And, you know, it's it's very important to sort of realize that when you have more, there, there have been some interesting studies on how power affects us and privilege is a form of power, right? And these studies have found that when you're in, a, in any position of power, right, like say you're a boss and you've got somebody working for you, um, you know, you are actually likely to develop certain attitudes and feelings that cause you to abuse that power. So just having power increases the chances that you will abuse the power, even if you're somebody who's really egalitarian in your philosophy and would never want to abuse power. So for instance, you're more likely to believe that, um, uh, to feel entitled to break the rules and that others shouldn't, to basically apply a double standard to yourself. So for instance, if you're the boss, you are much more likely to get angry at somebody who works for you showing up late to a movement, uh, movement to, to a meeting, um, than you are to, to feel angry at yourself or expect others to be angry at you when you're the one who shows up late. Um, also, when you're in a position of power, you are less likely to empathize with others than they are. To empathize with you. So, you know, this is, it's really important to be aware of because this just, it just happens, you know, it happens to all of us. And so knowing the way that we're psychologically affected is really, is really key. Also recognizing that, you know, you're less likely when, when you have privilege, you're less likely to, um, you're, you're more likely to feel that your opinions and needs and experiences are more important than others and more valid than those of others. Just knowing that can go a long way to helping mitigate the tendency to act on that.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, this is tricky. Um, I mean, here's another source of trickiness. Uh, I don't know how far I want to go down the trickiness rabbit hole, but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, one source of trickiness is um, it strikes me that um, the opportunity to become privilege literate is itself <laughs> circumstantial uh, to, to a large extent. So one, one who mm-hmm. is um, um, born into a, a country or into a, a family with sufficient resources for, for, for one to have a, a lot of educational opportunities, um, having educational opportunities, I think probably greatly... Expands one's ability to become privilege literate. Um, whereas um, someone who was not fortunate enough to have much in the way of educational opportunities, but 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 still has mm-hmm. other forms of privilege, will will not really be able to. It'll be a lot harder to become literate with respect to those other forms of privilege. Um, uh,
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And there's a lot of gray area. I mean, it's very it's 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 important to you know realize that beneath somebody's you know privilege, and, and we all occupy privileged and disadvantaged roles, right? And it's not all forms of, of privilege and disadvantage are equally harmful, of course, you know, but all of us occupy some privileged and some disadvantaged roles and um, or or positions in society. And it's, it's just, it's important to remember that like, underneath our role as a person, you know? And when you're advocating to somebody, if you're a person who's, you know, working to raise awareness of of somebody else's privilege, for instance, like, you may be rightfully very angry. You know, anger is the emotional response to injustice, to witnessing injustice. And, um, you know, and anger is, it's a really important emotion. Your anger is an indication that your moral compass is working. Generally, it's an indication that your moral compass is, is working. And, um, you know, our anger inspires us to take action on on our own and others' behalf, um, and at the same time, it's important to re- realize and just remember that underneath a person's privilege is a being, is a human being, and it's like it's on that level that the communication, you know, would i would ideally take place, or at least remembering that and keeping that in mind. And I mean, this is true for you know, any kind of awareness raising. Again, like, you know, many people who are advocating veganism, they just, they struggle so much because they're like, oh, they're talking to non-vegans and their mind. The non-vegan is like this selfish, lazy, you know, whatever, you know, fill in the blank adjective we might apply to them. You don't care about anybody, but you're, you know, all you care about are your taste buds while animals die. And, you know, I mean, it's true. Animals are, are being harmed and killed needlessly to 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 satisfy, you know, human consumers. There's no question about that. And it's also true that, you know people are more than their behaviors and you know it's underneath the difference in, in our you know sort of attitudes and beliefs carnism veganism um you know there's a relationship between people and that's where the attention needs to be if we want to be able to have a productive conversation that leads to you know true and and lasting change
0: mm-hmm. well and and that that line of thought uh leads really nice really nicely into my next question um so, whereas privilege literacy is, I guess, particularly important for those who, who wish to be good allies. Um, th- those of us who wish, so th- those who wish to create or recruit allies, um, the, the, I guess, a particularly important concept for them is mindfulness. Um, I was hoping you could explain mindfulness to us. I think you've already kind of started, but
1: yeah. Um so i write a little bit about this in 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 my book um in, in the vegan matrix as, as you're pointing out and so it's you know it, when i talk about mindfulness I'm, I'm, I'm talking about being sort of tuned into your own and another's experience you know being able to to self-reflect being able to, to if you can when you feel safe enough to maintain connection with your empathy and for this other person as you're communicating with them not everybody can feel feel safe enough to stay connected to their empathy and you know sometimes Sometimes it's not really the, the appropriate thing to do. Um, but, you know, mindfulness is one aspect of, of relational literacy. And, you know, relational literacy is based on, you know, or, or I should say it, it, it's made up of a number of different principles and, and practices. But um, at its core um, is is this formula. And I think this formula is probably the most useful sort of piece of information I can share when we're talking about, you know, creating connections, you know, whether they're connections with supporters or, you know, what have you. Um, the, for, I call this the formula for healthy relating. Um, basically, in a healthy interaction or a healthy relationship, I mean, relationships are really just a series of interactions. Um, so in a healthy relationship or interaction, we practice integrity and honor dignity. And this leads to a greater sense of security and connection. And I'll just unpack this really quickly. You know, practicing integrity basically means practicing the core, the universally espoused core moral values of of compassion and justice. It means treating another individual the way that you would want to be treated if you were in their position. Practicing respect, right? So that's practicing integrity. Honoring dignity is thinking of, perceiving, and treating the other as um, having inherent worth. That means you don't see them as any less worthy of occupying space on the planet and of being treated with respect than you or anyone else. So when you practice integrity and honor dignity, this causes you and the other to feel more secure and connected. And this is the core. This is healthy. This is healthy relationality, you know? So any interaction, any communication, I mean, communication is the primary way we relate, you know, any relationship um, in 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 any situation, we can practice this formula. It's just simply a matter of degree. Like most things in life, this formula expect, uh, exists on a spectrum. It's not that like you know, where either relational relational is is healthy, you know, or non relational dysfunctional, you know, an interaction or a relationship is more or less so, you know. And so a non relational interaction or uh, relationship is one in which we uh, violate integrity and harm dignity. And this leads to a sense of insecurity and disconnection. And so we can always come back to this formula and, you know, talking about tricky, complicated issues like privilege you know it's, it's 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 difficult it's it's very very difficult to do this and I want to be very mindful of the fact that you know when you are speaking out against your own oppression for example if you are a member of an oppressed group and and you're speaking out about this you know it it's not really realistic to think that you're going to be like speaking from the formula perfectly and hundred percent of the time because you have you know a lot of very understandable um anger, you know, and frustration. And I don't think we should expect anybody to be communicating perfectly or even close to perfectly when it comes to issues that are, you know, particularly painful um, and or organized, really organized around such profound injustices. And those of us who are working to to raise awareness, those of us who are acting as advocates in one way or another, um, though anybody, period, you know, the closer we can stick to the formula, the more likely we are to raise awareness of the issue that we're trying to raise awareness of, the more likely we are to open people's minds and hearts to what we're trying to say.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, my, so, I mean, mindfulness seems like a pretty important thing, um, but um, it requires patience, I guess. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so it, it's it's very, so it's, it's obviously, I guess, tempting when, when interacting with someone who you think is complicit in or, or maybe um, sort of actively contributing to um, oppression, um, it can be difficult to um, not just be indignant, I suppose, um, especially if you've been affected by by that person's behavior. And especially if you think that they've had like a real opportunity to become privileged literate, but they haven't. Um, Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, it's, it's worth, it's worth developing that kind of patience, I suppose. Um, Well,
1: it's, it's, and it's, it's patience and, you know, this is also skills and, you know, and it's also about knowing when it's the right time to be communicating, right? And if you have been on the receiving end of, of oppression, if you've been harmed by oppression, you know, and you're still in a state where you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling fragile. And, you know, then it's, it may not be time for you to be trying to, I mean, you have to have conversations when it feels right for you, obviously, but um, people need to be, you know, careful and protect their own boundaries. And um, I, it's also important to, to appreciate that, you know, with relational literacy, you know, and building mindfulness, which is a fundamental component of relational literacy, you know, building self-awareness, the ability to, and the ability to be more present and, you know, Present in the moment and tuned into your own and others' experiences, building relational literacy is not rocket science. It's um, you know, it's it's there's a set of skills that anybody can learn if they really want to and they're really committed to doing it. And it doesn't mean you have to like work hard to develop your patience or go meditate somewhere alone in a mountain. You know, you can really use your minute-to-minute communications as training grounds on which to build your own integrity build your own self awareness and build your own you know relational literacy um, one of my books it's called getting relationships right is a it's really it's a one stop guide to building relational literacy and um, you know i think for for many people even if they improve their level of relational literacy or increase their level just by like ten percent it can be game changing for them i mean it really makes life so much easier no matter what you 're talking about i mean whether you're Debating whether to stay in or go out on a Saturday night, or you know, you're trying to talk about you know patriarchy in the vegan movement. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, Well, so this this next question uh, is related to some of some some of what you've um, already touched on in your in your response. Um, In in chapter four, you explain that psychologists identify three stages in which recovery from trauma occurs, Uh, and you also indicate that that we can draw useful lessons from these stages about how to effectively communicate with those who've been harmed by by our own privilege, but, but also lessons about how to effectively communicate with those whose privilege has harmed us. Mm. Um, and yeah, I was hoping you could explain to us why, I guess say a bit about what the three stages are, but uh, explain to us why the the three stages of recovery is useful for effective communication.
1: I mean, really, w- when people have been, um, you know, uh, affected by oppression, this can very often cause them to have been traumatized. And, um, and even if it's not trauma, with the capital T, which it often is, right, it still can cause, um, you know, a lot of very understandable psychological, uh, um, I don't want to say psychological, not psychological, vulnerability. And, um, you know, so th- it, it's important to, again, know that communication as normal often doesn't apply when you're talking to somebody who has been harmed, particularly who has been harmed by an oppressive system that you are on the privilege, that you occupy a privileged role in. So when we think about healing from trauma, I mean, tra- healing from trauma is, you know, a Basically, um, there are three stages um, in healing from trauma. One is safety. You know, people basically need to feel safe before anything else can happen. Um, The next is acknowledging and expressing the emotions related to the trauma. That can only happen when a person has established safety. And then the third stage is reconnecting with others. Um, And so... You know, very often what we see is that, and you could see this in, in you know, the um, animal rights movement when during ARME2, you know, people were women, um, and, uh, you know, women and, and, and people of other genders as well sometimes were, you know, advocating the need for safe spaces, and they were being debated, on those need that need, right? And So, you know, when when somebody is advocating their need for safety, you know, no matter what, actually, they're no matter what reason they're advocating for safety, this is not a time to question it. This is not a time to debate it. You no know, co- communication is normal or as usual can't really happen during this this stage. This is a time to listen and learn, you know. And very often, even just like normal questioning can come across as self ex- as um cross-examining or, you know, debating. The same with stage two, acknowledging and expressing the emotions. This is not a time to be focusing on, you know, if you're occupying a privileged position, this is not a time to be focusing on yourself or your and your needs so much as to be listening to the needs and emotions that are being expressed by other people. Again, you could see what happened in army 2 where a lot of women were speaking out about their victimization, their traumatization. And then there were some men who were actually very well intentioned. I actually know some of them This turned into like public conversations. I guess if you can call Facebook public, but conversations on Facebook, um, you know, where, where, men were expressing, you know, their sadness and their horror at what was, what was surfacing. And, you know, and these, these feelings were real. These men's feelings were real, you know, and they were real feelings of concern. But what happened was it turned the conversation around to make it about the men's experiences. And then women felt like they had to start caretaking the men's feelings as opposed to like being able to just express their own experiences. So only in stage three is conversation as, you know, communication is normal, more appropriate. So it's important, you know, not to play devil's advocates, uh, devil's advocate, as I've said, and listen openly, listen with the goal of growing your awareness. You know, if you're, as I said, if you're occupying a a privileged position situation, um, try to educate yourself and not ask other people to, to do, to educate you. This happened to me. I mean, everything I'm talking about happened to me. um, I experienced, but, you know, as I said, when, when awareness raising finally started happening, A lot of men I was colleagues with who I had tried to talk about this issue before suddenly became open minded and then they wanted me to go digging and finding all of the great resources for them. And every time I shared a resource with them, it like wasn't, you know, it wasn't relatable or whatever. And I mean, the good news is that I ended up writing a book, um, but it it would have been nice if, you know, if the conversation had been a little bit different, a little bit different than that. Mm
0: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I. 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 It's neat how you apply these these three stages. I'm. I'm. I'm not a psychologist, so this is my first time hearing about them. Um, but. Uh, so for yeah, I it, just reflecting on like sort of pop cultural or not pop cultural, but I guess um public in the media um sort of uh discussions about um about privilege and about oppression and whatnot um uh sometimes it it so I I don't think that the public has uh, a considered settled opinion about what it means to be a good ally sometimes. So I think that people who want to be a good ally are sometimes told to shut up and listen and, uh, and then other people will say, no, don't shut up and listen. Being a good ally, shut, shutting up and listening is like being complicit or kind of, <laughs> um, you should not shut up and listen. You should be supportive and vocally supportive, right? Um, that's important. That's the important thing about being a good ally. And then, so for people who are hearing this advice, people who want to be good allies, it's just like, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, and, but, but this, but this is useful, right? The, the answer that you're giving here, at least is it depends. Um, at the beginning, you should shut up and listen. And then later on, you can be more vocal and supportive, something, something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and again, when you really understand relational literacy, it's, it's a lot easier because, yeah. you know, the basics of like healthy communication, they apply no matter what. And, um, and it does depend. I mean, being a supporter to others, an ally or a supporter to others, it depends, you know, and, and, and what it means to one person might be different, and it is different than what it means to somebody else. So ask the person, whoever is asking you to, if somebody is asking you to be an ally, mm-hmm. you can ask, say, what, what does that look like to you?
0: Mm-hmm right okay yeah fair enough um okay well let's um uh let's i've got one more question for you and then and then we'll we'll close up but so your book argues that um addressing privilege and and effectively helping animals are complementary goals um so in other words you, your book argues that addressing privilege improves our ability to to help animals um mm-hmm. i was hoping you could explain this argument and uh, and maybe say a bit about why why you thought it was important to point this out to everybody
1: well, I mean often um understandably I think, you know, yeah. vegans have often said like, well, wait a minute, like there's only so much time in the day. Like I I I can't work for everything. I can't take on all causes because they assume that like addressing other forms of oppression, you know, requires working for other causes. And you know, of course you've got to pick your cause and you know, you've got to you got to pick your battles basically. And um you know, but it it's what I'm saying here is that we can work to create a better world for animals, not only without throwing others under the bus as we do that, but as lifting, we can all lift each other up because as I said, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not just talking about a straightforward change of behavior. We're talking about a shift of consciousness. We're talking about relating in a fundamentally different way. If we want to change the world, we need to change the way we relate, or we're just going to keep recreating oppressions in new forms. So, you know, when we start, I think, first of all, you know, when we are working to create a more, um, what's the word I'm looking for if self-aware movement, you know, for animals, a a, a more inclusive movement, um, with more awareness around oppression and around privilege, you know, we, we help to create a movement that's more resilient. A resilient movement is healthy. It's a, it's a movement where advocates feel secure and connected with one another. You know, as I said, in, in some ways we're, we're cannibalizing ourselves as a movement because we're relating to each other so dysfunctionally. And, you know, we, when we, cre- we relate to each other in a way that creates greater security and connection, we create resilience in our movement. That means we're more empowered. That means we're more impactful. That means we have a better we are better able to help more animals, you know, or to spare more animals. We can't do that when we haven't examined our own privileges, because we end up acting out this dysfunction, you know, with the people in our movement and creating disconnection and insecurity in the movement. And also, we end up turning others off to the movement. You know, feminists are a great example. I mean, feminists are, you know... Anybody who's working for social justice really are naturally aligned with us, you know, Um, but very often see some of our tactics and get really turned off, you know, so when we use objectified women's bodies to sell animal rights, we turn off a lot of people, you know, would turn off pretty much everybody who's got any kind of analysis around patriarchy. And, and there's no need to do that. And in fact, it's, you know, as I've said, it, it's counterproductive to the kind of world we want to create. And it's certainly counterproductive to, you know, creating a resilient and empowered movement. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, it, it, it may, maybe this is related, it, it strikes me that it's something of, um, um, I don't know, uh, I would have said it was a, In the past, it was a stereotype, like that sometimes people stereotype vegans as a movement of the privileged or something like that. Um, but probably there are ways in which vegans have contributed to that, and and that's what you're that's what you're part of what you're talking about in the book. Like there are some concrete ways in which in which vegan advocates contribute to the not just the impression that that they have privilege, but to the impression that <laughs> that they're not handling their privilege well, um, and and we should stop doing that. Um, okay great well so I, I, thanks so much for for joining us here um, uh, it's been great having you on the podcast uh, I, and for anyone who's who's um, forgotten the um the name of the book we've been discussing is the vegan matrix understanding and discussing privilege among vegans to build a more inclusive and empowered movement uh, this book was published in in 2020 by lantern media and publishing uh, the only other question i have for you melanie is whether you're currently working on any projects and and if so what are they
1: yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me. It's been really, really a pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah. So I ha- we have a few projects in the works at Beyond Carnism. Um, as I I think I mentioned next year, um, in 2023, my new book, How to End Injustice Everywhere is coming out. And that's really, it's looking at uh, ways that, you know, whatever form of injustice you're challenging, whether it's injustice against animals, the environment, or, you know, other humans, uh, the, the this book gives a sort of an an overview of what a little bit of what we've been talking about, right, of these non-relational systems, how they're structured, how um, our own movements and groups can end up internalizing the, the very mentality that we're trying to transform in the world and how to avoid that. Um, and a, a piece of that is also understanding um, the causes and consequences of infighting, uh, in movements and in groups and uh, ways to to navigate to prevent and, and, and manage and overcome infighting um, building on that we have some new work at Beyond carnism um, that is designed really specifically to raise awareness of infighting among vegans so and also to build awareness of, of relational literacy among vegans so these, we've got new workshops and new resources for those um, we'll have <clears throat> some new Siva courses uh, our Center for effective vegan advocacy has some new courses that we'll be releasing one is providing um, and inclusivity in the vegan movement, which touches on, touches on, discusses a lot of what we were talking about here today. Um, we have the science of effective vegan advocacy, which we've just released. This is a, these are two digital courses that I'm referring to. Um, we've got some new vegan communication hacks, which are, you know, basic simple talking points and, and concepts to, to, to utilize when you're trying to have those difficult communication, difficult communications. And um, and the next season of Just Beings will be out, and uh, we're very most likely going to be talking about to people who are working for food systems change. Um, so I'm really excited about doing that. So those are a few of the projects we have, and people can learn more at carnism.org or at veganadvocacy.org.
0: Yeah, great. That, that Those sound like wonderful projects. Um, best of luck with, with, all, with all of them.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much.